welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 1 King James Bible Hello! Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. We're so happy that you're able to join us today on Anchored by Truth as we keep going with our series we call The Seriousness of Sin. We're doing this series because there is an ongoing effort in our culture today to eliminate sin as a real and present danger to our lives and to our eternal salvation. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., sin is a pretty unpopular concept in our culture today, and even in the church. Why do you think that is? Well, I would also like to welcome everybody to Anchored by Truth today. We're glad that you're able to join us for this episode, and we hope that you join us for many episodes of Anchored by Truth. I think that the reason our culture rejects the concept of sin today, or at least finds it abominable, finds it abhorrent, sin is unpopular because the word sin, the very idea of sin, embodies three elements that are out of favor in popular Western culture. Those three elements are God, transcendent moral and ethical standards, and judgment. Today, our culture hates the idea that someday an omniscient and perfectly holy God is going to pass judgment on everyone who has ever lived. And yet, as much as we hate that idea in the Western world today, well, and probably beyond the Western world, we just can't get away from it. The Bible is very clear that no matter how much people try to deny that God exists and they are sinful, it doesn't work. The book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 say, quote, From heaven God shows how angry he is with all the wicked and evil things that sinful people do to crush the truth. They know everything that can be known about God, because God has shown it all to them. God's eternal power and character cannot be seen. But from the beginning of creation, God has shown what these are like by all he has made. That's why those people don't have any excuse, unquote. And that's from the contemporary English version. Right. We all know that God exists, and we all know that we are accountable to Him. And we may deny that, we may deny those facts our whole lives, but our denial doesn't change the reality. And that's the biggest reason that we are doing this series. Because the reality is that sin poses a danger to every single person on the planet. Sin can dramatically affect lives in the here and now. Like driving drunk or stealing your neighbor's property or failing to pay your taxes. Yes, sin can and does affect the lives of people in the here and now. But even more seriously, sin imperils our eternal destiny. Unrepentant sinners, if they remain unrepentant until they die, they're going to face an eternity in hell. 
And that's what we spent our last two episodes of Anchored by Truth discussing. We spent an episode discussing the reality of hell, and we spent an episode discussing the nature of hell. There are a lot of cartoonish and Hollywood movie portrayals of hell, but none of them ever approach the nightmarish truth. Yes, hell is an eternity of despair, desolation, and destruction. Now, that eternity is depicted in the Bible by a number of horrible images. A lake of fire, or a burning pit of garbage with worms that don't die, or a deep abyss filled with smoke and torment, etc. But regardless of how horrible the Bible's depictions are, the reality of hell will be much, much worse than even the worst depiction that the Bible presents. So, the possibility of winding up there is pretty serious. And the reason people will wind up there, if they don't rely on Jesus as their Savior, is sin. Sin is so serious because it has eternal implications for the sinner. Right. Unredeemed sinners have only one destination, and it is not heaven. And there is only one way for any sinner to be redeemed, and that's by the atoning blood of Christ Jesus. Now, fortunately, Christ's atonement is available to any and everyone who will simply ask for him to become their Savior. So all they have to do is confess their sin and ask to Christ to come into their lives to be their Savior and Christ will happily become their Savior, their advocate, if you will. And that's why you titled one of your fiction books, The Prodigal's Advocate. We are all prodigals. We all need an advocate. Yes, that's why I wrote Prodigal's Advocate. Now, Prodigal's Advocate is a fictional allegory, but it's designed to help people understand that we are all sinners, and we all need an advocate to represent us before the judgment seat of God. Because if Christ doesn't represent us, we're going to be there on our own. And an imperfect being standing on their own before an infinite and perfect judge, that's not just a dire situation. That's a situation from which recovery is literally impossible. And that's why we're doing this Seriousness of Sin series. We don't want anybody to experience the desolation and destruction of hell. Because hell will be eternal. And no matter how long we live on this earth, our time on this earth will be just a blip of time and eternity. So today we wanted to conclude our discussion about hell and move on to how we can all be certain for ourselves that sin, hell, and judgment are real. But you said that there is one more topic about hell that we need to cover. Yes, We began this discussion just as we were closing out our last episode of Anchored by Truth. We have to get rid of the idea that's present among some people that hell is just some kind of a giant party place where the sinners who are there will be with their sinful friends and all of them are just going to continue sinning for all eternity. A sort of hot but happy scenario. I know what you're thinking about. I've heard people say flippantly, I don't care if I get sent to hell. That's where all my friends will be, or something like that. I won't mind being in hell as long as the beer is cold there. A lot of people seem to have the notion that hell will be like an earthly prison. A really hot one, maybe, but like a prison where Satan is the warden and the demons are prison guards. So these people reason that in hell, 
Prisoners may be miserable, but they're going to be free to move around and talk to each other. But there are Bible verses that directly contradict the notion that anyone in hell will have freedom of movement. For instance, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, those verses say, quote, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him, unquote. That's the New International Version. There's also a verse in the book of Jude that talks about demons being bound with chains. And it goes without saying that anyone bound with chains is certainly not going to be roaming about. Now, I don't know if the chains mentioned by Jude or John, who wrote the book of Revelation, are literal chains, or whether God was simply using images that would have been familiar to the audiences in the age when Jude and John wrote. But whether the chains are literal or not, the language that Jude and John used sends a very clear message that the demons and the people in hell are going to be confined. Now, will they be confined together or separately? We don't know. But there is no Bible verse that indicates that the prisoners in hell are going to have the opportunity to be sharing their misery with one another. And those verses point out another thing. As you mentioned, many people think that in hell, Satan is the warden and the demons are the prison guards. But those verses from Revelation and Jude certainly don't support that idea. No, they don't. Now, let's remember that hell was not originally intended for human beings. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus told his audience, quote, Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons, unquote. Jesus said that eternal fire of hell was prepared for the devil and his demons. So, hell was prepared for the devil and his demons. It was not established as a giant prison to hold people that would be operated by the devil and his demons. You know, I've seen books written by people who supposedly had some kind of an afterlife or an out-of-body experience. And one of them that I read said that the writer found themselves in hell before they were finally summoned to heaven. Now, the problem with this book was that the description of what this writer said he experienced in hell was like most Hollywood productions portray hell to be. And those Hollywood productions and his depictions of hell was inconsistent with the Bible. In this writer's description, he said he was in a sort of cave-like structure that had individual cells and the cells all had iron bars on their door. And he had sort of a grotesque, demonic-type being who was in the cell with him, and who was acting as his tormentor. And there were many similar figures throughout the part of the prison that he could see. And all these beings, these grotesque, demonic-type beings, they were tormenting people, various kinds of people, throughout the part of the prison that he could see. And so these grotesque monsters, in addition to tormenting the people, they were also marching the humans around in the corridors, and they were moving them in and out of a larger chamber where more exquisite forms of pain were being inflicted. Sounds very Hollywood, or like a childish sort of imagery scene. Obviously, such a place would be very unpleasant. But the problem is that, as you said, inconsistent with the Bible. In the real hell, the demons are being tormented themselves. They are not the tormentors. Right. 
Satan and his demons hate people. They especially hate the redeemed, the Christians, but they don't even like the people who claim to worship them or serve them. Satan is the master of delusion and deception, and so he deceives some people into believing that if somehow they worship or serve him, that he's going to be a friend or an ally to them. He's not. Now, Satan may hate them a little less than he hates Christians, but he still hates them. Because all people are created in the image of God, and Satan hates God most of all. Satan hates God. Satan certainly hates God's image bearers. And Satan regards those who worship him as fools and tools. Fools and tools. Now, there's a phrase. But that's exactly what he thinks of them. They're fools because they trust Satan rather than trusting Almighty God who would save them if they would just ask. And they're tools because Satan can use them to further his wicked ambitions. What they are not to Satan is his friends. Satan doesn't have any friends and he doesn't want any. Satan only wants subjects who will worship him. We saw that in Satan's temptations of Christ in the wilderness. At any rate, the point is that the demons are not in charge of hell or running the place. They are imprisoned, confined occupants of hell, and they are in at least as much misery there as the people who wind up joining them. Hell and its eternal fire were prepared for them, and they know it. That's why the demons Jesus encountered displayed such a fear of him, commanding them to return to the abyss. Jude and John tell us that the demons are chained. So chained beings are not chasing anyone around with pitchforks or whatever item the Hollywood prop master wants to put in their hands. Real demons are not masters in hell. They are just another group of miserable occupants. But I suppose the people will assert that the biblical descriptions of hell are also imaginary, as is the concept of God and sin. They might, but they would be in error if they did so. And all denials of God's existence are artificial and self-defeating. In fact, we did an entire series on Anchored by Truth called The Lord of Logic, where we address the five most common objections to God's existence. In Lord of Logic, we showed that all objections to God's existence are logically indefensible. In other words, they are unreasonable in a formal, logical sense. That series is available from our website, crystalseabooks.com. That's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S-E-A-B-O-O-K-S dot com for anyone who wants to take a deeper dive into that subject. Yes, and the Lord of Logic series, that's a really good series for anyone who wants to assure themselves that the Christian faith is rock solid, not just from the standpoint of the assurance that it provides, but also from the standpoint of withstanding any assaults against the faith that claim to be based on reason or evidence. But even if people don't want to explore the topic of God's existence at the depths that we do in Lord of Logic, there is another way that people can quickly determine that everything the Bible says about God, sin, and judgment is true. How is that? By thinking about one word, guilt. Guilt is God's gift to man to assure us that he exists, that sin is real, and that there is a coming judgment. I'm not sure that most people would think of guilt as being a gift. But it is. Think about what the concept of guilt implies. For guilt to be present, there must first of all be an offense. 
For an offense to occur, there must be a law or standard that defines permissible behavior or activity. And there couldn't be a law or standard without a lawgiver or a standard maker. And none of that would be perceptible by human beings if human beings did not possess the ability to understand the existence of laws or standards and the implications of violations of those laws or standards. Dictionary.com defines guilt as, quote, 1. The fact or state of having committed an offense, crime, violation, or wrong, especially against moral or penal law, culpability, and 2. A feeling of responsibility, remorse, for some offense, crime, wrong, etc., whether real or imagined, unquote. So as you just stated, for guilt to occur, there must first be an offense or crime. And there wouldn't be an offense or crime if there wasn't first a law or standard. This is sounding very similar to what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, where he said that the law was our tutor or guide to bring us to Christ. One translation calls the law our schoolmaster. Yes. All human beings, except maybe for some psychopaths, experience guilt. It's probably as universal a human phenomenon as we know about. Even people who deny the existence of God will acknowledge that they, sometime, maybe a lot, experience guilt. But without God, what standards could exist that would be so binding on their conscience that they would experience a feeling of remorse if they violate those standards? I suppose they might say that even if God doesn't exist, that there are laws or standards established by human communities that should govern us all, that these laws or standards are helpful and necessary to ensure harmony and stability in human society. Sure, they can say that, but that still doesn't answer the question about why peace, harmony, and stability are better than instability and chaos. Then they might say that peace, harmony, and stability are essential for survival that human communities are stronger and survive better than an individual can on their own. They might say the impulse to seek peace is part of a survival of the fittest. The most harmonious societies are those that survive the best. And they can say that. But that doesn't answer the question about why survival is better than non-survival. Anyone who denies the existence of God is forced to fall back on evolution in deep time as their explanation for why the world and the universe exist and appear as they do. But evolution essentially means that human beings are just the latest product in a long series of the random aggregation of unthinking atoms, and those atoms all happen to collect in one point in time. Well, if human beings are just the product of the random aggregation of atoms, why would we think that the preservation of such random aggregations of atoms is better than the loss of such random aggregations of atoms? If evolution were true, then survival is no better than non-survival because there is no basic standard that makes it so. I see what you're saying. The moment that we introduce the idea that one thing is better than another, that anything can be better or worse than something else, that process implies judgment against a standard by some entity that has the capability of understanding the standard, making a judgment, and then reacting to the results of the judgment. 
and there is simply no way that random aggregation of atoms and molecules could create a meaningful standard, much less impose that standard in an obligatory way on the other random aggregations of atoms or molecules. Exactly. The existence of an eternal, omnipotent, holy God that created the universe and then populated it with creatures, some of which possess a portion of his attributes, that easily explains why that creature is intelligent and morally aware. But even if you could explain the existence of matter, energy, time, and space apart from God, you cannot explain why those impersonal material components can create intelligent beings who perceive moral and ethical verities and laws and who can feel the weight of those verities and laws on them and that those creatures can experience regret or remorse, guilt, when they fail to live up to the obligations that are imposed on them through those laws and verities. So what you're saying is, is that when people deny the existence of God, they undercut their ability to make any moral or ethical judgments at all. How can one random aggregation of atoms make an ethical judgment about other random aggregations of atoms? Yet it is the people who deny God, especially those who deny the existence of the God of the Bible, who are the most prone to telling us how wrong we are when we display what they label as intolerance. Right. I think of them as being the Tolerance Brigade. The Tolerance Brigade. Again, there's a phrase. The Tolerance Brigade is the group that goes around telling us that we must tolerate any behavior they find acceptable, all the while telling us that they do not have to tolerate ideas and beliefs that they don't find acceptable. They judge and condemn others for what they perceive to be the crime of being judgmental and intolerant. Right. Tolerance as a proclaimed ultimate virtue is always hypocritical because tolerance condemns intolerance, which is itself being intolerant. Now, tolerance can be a virtue, is a virtue, when it's guided by truth and transcendent values. But left to its own, tolerance is just a vice that betrays virtue and promotes all sort of mischief. But the main point I want to emphasize here is that any discussion of what's acceptable or unacceptable behavior involves the idea that we can distinguish between something that's acceptable or something that's unacceptable. I mean, if we can't distinguish between those two, then what would be the point of saying things like, I find that offensive? And you hear that a lot these days. When the Tolerance Brigade wants to get their own way, they will often tell us that we are being offensive if we say that certain behavior is sinful and that that behavior will result in condemnation to hell. But they can't tell us that sin and hell are offensive ideas if they don't accept the idea that it's possible for an offense to occur. And as you've pointed out, without mandatory standards of behavior that apply to people when committing an offense or crime isn't possible. Right. An offense is different from a preference. Somebody may prefer broccoli more than green beans or green beans more than broccoli. But someone who chooses to serve broccoli, not green beans, they're not creating an offense. Now, someone who steals their neighbor's property has offended their neighbor because there is a transcendent ethical standard that says that stealing as a behavior is not acceptable. Well, if you deny God, you deny the possibility that transcendent ethical standards can exist. 
And one of the big problems that is well known with philosophies like pantheism, God is everything and everything is God, is that they do away with a meaningful distinction between good and evil. But we all know that good and evil exist. And we all know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And we all know that when we choose to do things that are wrong or fail to choose to do the things that are right, we are committing sin. And we know that we are sinning because we will feel guilty. Now, we may deny that we feel guilt, but our denials won't do away with the guilt. And our denials, the majority of the time, are not even going to do away with the feelings of guilt. So guilt is an absolute assurance to us that we're all aware that God exists, that objective morals and ethical standards and laws exist, and that someday we're all going to be judged against those standards by that perfect, omniscient, holy God. So the big idea we wanted to introduce today is that human beings all have an internal way to validate the external reality of God, sin, and judgment. We all feel guilt at some point in our lives. That guilt may be reasonable or unreasonable. But even unreasonable guilt tells us that we have a facility for knowing that some things are right and others wrong, and that we have an obligation to do the right things and avoid the wrong. We may not like this reality, but as we have often said on Anchored by Truth, our preferences don't change reality. This sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer of adoration for the Holy Spirit, who is the person within the Trinity that Jesus tells us would guide us to a knowledge of the truth. The truth is that sin and hell are real, but there is greater truth that Jesus came to save us from our sin, and we can choose to let Christ be our advocate and represent us before the throne of judgment. And with Christ as our advocate, our salvation is assured. A Prayer of Adoration of the Holy Spirit Great and mighty God, you are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for their souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you rule and reign with the Father and the Son. When the Son completed his work and ascended to the Father, you came to be our comforter, instructor, and advocate. You came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, you affirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. Praise be to the one who tells us the truth about Jesus and who strengthens us against the forces of powers of wickedness that attack us in our humanity. Left to ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. But in you, we have victory. For greater are you than Satan who is in the world. You are worthy of exaltation and adoration, for you are fully God and Lord. You regenerate our hearts and bring light to our minds. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who not only imparts wisdom, but also gives us the capacity to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading, and we praise you for being the faithful minister to our souls. Time and time again, you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel. 
You have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. Finite man cannot fully comprehend the wondrous relationship that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are perfect in unity, holiness, and beauty. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by the Father's sending, the Son's coming, and the Spirit's abiding. Surely such love deserves the response of full dedication to the one who first loved us, and we pray that such commitment might mark our lives. We lift our voices in songs of adoration and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S, Thank you for your support.